when you're scaling a business, I've realized not every person scales the same rate. And the key factor for why they don't scale is they can't learn and adapt as the business grows, right? How you manage a business with 50 people versus 500 people versus 5,000 people is very, very different. And even myself, like I've learned a lot. When I was at Blade Logic, I was a missile. If you were in my way, I wasn't going to go around you. I was going to go through you. And I realized that came at some cost. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is both personally and professionally to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. Dude, I appreciate you doing this. Obviously, I'm really excited. I wish we could have done it in person, but maybe we'll do that for uh, round two when Mongo has doubled its market cap. Then we can be in person. I was having a conversation with a guy named Shlomo Kramer. Do you know who that is? Yes, yes, I know Shlomo, yes. You and Shlomo are kind of in rarefied air, having both taken multiple companies public. And what Shlomo and I were talking about was this concept of the burden of persona. And I think it's somewhat intuitive from the name, but I wonder, do you feel when you're walking around New York City or when you're in the office or generally just in any work or career state, the feeling of the burden of persona? I would answer that two ways. One, I think Shlomo is one of the most successful entrepreneurs in Israel, right? So he's a larger than life figure. I was supposed to connect with him when I was in Israel this time last year, but our schedules didn't... Uh, intersect. I'd met him in the Valley a couple of times and he's very close to some other people I know really, really well. So I would say in New York, tech was not the biggest industry in New York. It was essentially banking, private equity. They were the alpha males or females walking around town. So I was pretty under the radar for a long, long time. And I'm not the kind of person who went out looking for to be on the speaking circuit or, you know, wanted to see my name in lights. Uh, so I never kind of gravitated to those kinds of things. And so I kept a pretty low profile. I think when uh, Blaylogic went public and we did it the hard way, I raised, to put things in perspective, in total, I raised 29 million of venture capital and had seven in the bank when we filed our IPO and we were a direct sales company. So essentially the only way we could really fund that business was through revenue from customers. And I think when people look back and saw what we did, I think that's when people realized, wow, that was a special company. And then when people saw the people who came out of that company, I got some attention, but Blade Logic was centered in Boston. So that was the other thing. Like I was actually commuting from New York to Boston. And so that was another reason why I never felt this quote unquote, uh, you know, I got to live up to some reputation. The second part of the answer is that when you're in a senior role, you have to recognize that bad news flows very slowly up to you. Good news will find me anywhere. I could be on vacation. I could be in a different corner of the earth and people will call me. We closed that deal. We hired that rockstar engineer. We got the product shipped. But bad news I have to really look for. And it's human nature for people to filter bad news when they share bad news up the organization, right? Imagine a customer tells one of our sales reps, hey, I'm really unhappy. I'm going to throw you guys out. And that rep tells her boss, that his boss tells 
you know, the boss and it goes up the food chain. And by the time I hear it, it's, hey, we're having a problem with Acme company, but we're on top of it and all is well. And then, you know, a month later, I find out that the customer churned. And so whenever I hear bad news, I automatically assume two things. One, that I'm the last to know. And uh, two, it's far worse than what people are telling me. And that has served me really, really well. The more senior you are, the more you have to spend time searching for bad news. Because to your point, most people don't want to share bad news. Why was the company in Boston if you were in New York? That's a good question. This was, again, middle of 2000. The bubble had just burst. New York was not really known as a tech mecca. Then there was a lot of ad tech companies in New York, but no one is doing really hardcore tech stuff in New York. You could argue maybe there were one or two companies here and there, but it was not well known. Then the people I surrounded myself with were all based in Boston because the last company I had, which was based in New York, but merged with another company in Boston, the people I want to do play logic with were all based in Boston. So there's some center of gravity pulling me to Boston. Mm. I did actually try to start the company in New York. I just found, though, that the talent at that time in New York, most of the talent was on Wall Street. And when you approach people to consider startup, they're like, yeah, that sounds interesting, but they still had a high expectation of a cash comp, as well as a very meaningful slug of equity. And obviously that just wasn't possible. So we just realized that the best place to start the company was in Boston. And ultimately we built the business there. I did open office, obviously in the New York area and had some people in New York. That was the way we built the business. And it was hard. I was commuting up to Boston two, three days a week, traveling, visiting customers and doing other stuff. So I was on the road a lot during that time. And to the point, the question you asked earlier, you know, when you have kids and other obligations, it gets really, really hard. So you had kids at home at this point? I had my first child in 2001, and then uh, the second guy showed up in 2003. And can I double click on when you started the company? It was in New York originally. The origin story of the company was in New York. You tried to hire some engineers. That didn't go very well. And then what, you reluctantly went to Boston? I would say by the time we raised capital, we had made a decision that the company was going to be in Boston. We were obviously, so what I had done was I was an EIRR at Bessemer Venture Partners and my main co-founder, we had a few other co-founders, my main co-founder was an EIRR Battery. So those two firms were basically signaling to us saying, hey, we think you're smart guys. We think you'll do some interesting things. Obviously, there's no guarantee of them funding any idea we came up with, but they were going to give us the benefit of doubt. The Bessemer crew that I was working with was in New York, and the battery crew that my co-founder was working with was in Boston. Uh, long story short, as we debated and discussed where to put the business, I had a couple other co-founders who were also in Boston. And so over a span of about six months, we decided that it made sense to put the company in Boston. And that's we made that decision and started hiring people and closed our first round of financing in early September. Dude, when you think back to that time, honestly, if you knew what you knew then, now, going back and forth between two cities, they aren't that close to each other, little kid at home, trying to get a company off the ground, would you do it again? <laughs> if you talk to my wife, she would say NFW, <laughs> because uh, it was very hard on her. She ultimately had to give up her career because I was traveling so much. And, you know, startups are hard, no matter, even if you're in the same city, it's really, really hard. And at the time, the bubble, first bubble had just burst. VCs were very, very nervous about their existing portfolio company. They were doing a lot of triage of the portfolio company. So there was a high bar to make new investments. 
And so if your new deal started going sideways, that would freak people out because mm. obviously everyone was on pins and needles at the time. And so there was an enormous amount of pressure on us. And so, yeah, when I look back, sometimes, you know, naivete is a good thing because you just don't know what you don't know and you just plow through. And, you know, one of my beliefs is that the only enduring edge in life is psychological. And what I mean by that is that knowing how to have long-term orientation, delaying gratification, dealing with adversity, being comfortable with low status that we just talked about, being unconventional. And it's hard because it's so contrary to human nature. Most mm. people can't delay gratification. Most people can't think long-term. Most people can subjugate their ego. And so if you can do that, you have a real competitive advantage. I didn't know that at the time, but as I look back now and connect dots, it makes so much more sense to me. Do you feel like you can cultivate that edge? Do you feel like your mind is like your body in that respect where you can train it? Or do you think it's just more through the school of hard knocks? Meaning, could you teach your kids that? I think it can be taught. I think it's a function of how badly you want something and what is your environment. My childhood was very atypical and I had a real chip on my shoulder. And so I really wanted to prove that I was, I could do something really special. You know, I was born in India, lived all over the world. I went to college here in the U.S. I was very insecure of the fact that I didn't go to an elite school. I went to a state school. Now I'm very proud of that fact. But at the time, I was insecure because I was the oldest of three kids. My parents, my dad worked for an oil company in Nigeria, but then Nigeria started becoming unstable. And so then he went back to grad school. He actually went to Cornell and got another master's. So they eviscerated their balance sheet. He then got a job in the aerospace industry, and I was the oldest of three kids. So when I was going to school, while their income statement looked didn't look too bad, their balance sheet was horrific. There's just no way that I could go to um, elite school with, obviously, even then, it was much more expensive than going to a state school. And I had such a chip on my shoulder. And so I was on a mission to prove that I was as good as all the Ivy League folks who went to these Ivy League schools. And I just, for me, I really felt I had to prove that I was, I could do something great. And I think when you have that inner drive, you will put yourself through anything to achieve what you want. And that's actually to your point about kids. I do worry that, worry about that for my kids because they obviously are very lucky. They have compared to the average person, they got have more resources than most mm -hmm. people. And I worry that do they have the edge and do they have the drive that I did to really try and do something special? Were other family members in the Ivy Leagues? Like, why are Ivy Leagues the point of insecurity? Where did that come from? Yeah, I mean, I mean, one, I'm of Indian origin. Indians value education. I had a cousin who, uh, who was a couple of years older than me. He was literally, he could have played the part of, of the lead character in Goodwill Hunting. He went to high school in India, but he was so brilliant. He got a full scholarship to MIT. And literally a couple of years at MIT, the teachers told him to stop bothering to come to class. He was way ahead of everyone else. And then he got a PhD at Harvard in business administration. And then he went to Wall Street. He went to become a quant at Wall Street. And so as you can imagine, uh, your parents and other people always say, oh, isn't he doing so well? So you have like, you know, you're always being compared against this one person. Now, obviously he was off the charts in terms of his brilliance, but there's other people who are also had done well academically. 
more that gone to school in India than gone to good grad schools here in the U.S. And my dad, as I said, had gone to Cornell. And so I got into some good schools, but they, you know, my parents just couldn't at the time afford to send me to those schools. And, and given their income statement looked pretty good, it was very hard for them to get scholarships. And yeah, that pissed you off. Yeah. And so I had a massive chip on my shoulder. And I also, frankly, a little bit at the time, I would say I also felt had a little bit of a victim complex. Woe is me. And looking back now, the worst time I felt about my life was when I played the victim. And I realized, and I tell this to my boys, is like, don't ever be a victim because you lose all agency and you feel horrible by yourself. And so for me, like it hit me when I graduated college and said, okay, I have the rest of my life in front of me. I can't be playing the victim here. And that's when I just, you know, became a missile. And I just was like, I started at AT AT&T. I was in this rotational management program. Again, I went to Rutgers University. McKinsey and Goldman were not recruiting from Rutgers. Mm. And so I went to this rotational program. I, I got a bunch of different opportunities to do different things. I guess they thought I had some leadership potential. It's kind of like a leadership development program. That's how I started my career. Dude, do you think that feeling of insecurity actually goes away? Or do you think you replace it with something else? Meaning today you're Dave who runs a billion and a half revenue public company, but you've never done that before. Just like when you were running your first company, you'd never done that before. And so maybe you kind of start to compare yourself to different types of monsters, meaning you have Frank Slootman out there and that's going to be your new bar that you feel like you have to go run up against. Do you feel that? I think it depends on the person. So I grew up in, a, as I mentioned earlier, I grew up in a very atypical environment. So one, I'm a Christian Indian in India. So only 2% of India's population is Christian. Two, my mother got divorced when I was very, very young because my natural father was just not a, you know, a nice person. And so being a Christian coming from, and this is like in the early seventies, right? So this is not like something that in India was very common, but my, mm-hmm. I have a lot of, I owe a lot to my mother because against the grain, against a lot of family pressure, she realized that her husband was not a good person and she refused to be with him anymore. And so being the child of divorced parents, I had this little bit of a stigma. Then my mom got remarried and then they moved out of India. They first moved to London and then I lived in Canada for a year and lived in Nigeria. Then it came here. So I had this like very atypical environment. And so I never felt like I'm part of some community where I'm, I'm a majority. I've always felt like an outsider looking in, whether I was in India, whether it's just the, my upbringing. So part of me is always feel like, am I good enough? Am I really good enough? There's something fundamentally wrong with me. And I think my search for achieving something is to prove that I am actually good enough. And it's taken a long time for me to kind of come to that realization. But I think that's what drives me. And I think if someone grew up in a more traditional environment, you know, nuclear family, very supportive ecosystem, maybe they don't have that edge. So I don't know. You know, I just know my own experience. Not to pull up the therapy couch here, but do you actually feel that way today? Meaning I do believe that you have persisted in this feeling that you're not good enough. And I also believe that that's the driving force behind so much of you today and what you've accomplished. Don't you still feel like that's a burning log in you? Don't you still think that that insecurity is the force? 
It does. I mean, obviously, as you get more external validation, you can feel a little bit better about yourself. Obviously, I'm really proud of what we've done at MongoDB. I was really proud of what we did at PlayLogic. And not so much because of the financial success, but more about the value we created, the lives we affected, Mm. the impact we've had. And so you start feeling a little bit better about yourself, but you're right. One setback and you can very quickly feel like, oh my God, you know, (laughs) am I good enough? And it's a huge driver for me. Uh, I don't think you ever lose it. Look, I feel the same way. My parents divorced when I was young in a Persian household, which is, I imagine, very similar to an Indian household. Dentist, doctor, lawyer, those are kind of the career paths. Certainly not sales. And I remember feeling when I was a kid that I just didn't have much control. Like there was this very distinct feeling that I had that being split between houses, you know, my name was Jubin, for Christ's sake. It was spelled differently. I'm sure you can relate. I was the short kid, front and center of every picture from first to sixth grade. And I think that short insecure Jubin never goes away. And in some cases, I think that I hate that kid because he rears his ugly head in ways that I'm not proud of. But in other ways, I don't know if I can be who I am without that person pushing me. And I guarantee you that young Dave rears its ugly head. And I think that's what wakes you up in the morning and fucking pushes you to keep building. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but I get worried that if I'm your age and I still feel this way, I'll be exhausted by the feeling. It's exhausting, right? I don't know. Does that resonate? It does. I mean, um, you know, there's definitely times when you're down or low, you've had another setback. It's like, why can't life be a little easier? But then you also feel some sense of pride that you weren't that kid where everything was handed to you. Like I've seen, obviously, a lot of people who have so much opportunity who squander it. And actually, one of the wake-up calls for me was, again, I said I felt like a victim. Woe is me. How life is unfair. And then I had this kind of epiphany saying like, okay, I just graduated college. I'm in the United States of America. 99% of the kids would kill to have the opportunities that you know are in front of me. Let's stop kind of feeling like a victim and let's try and see what you can do. And there's a quote that I read that really hit home for me. And the quote is called the definition of hell. And on your last day on earth, the person you became met the person you could have become. And that kind of really hit me in terms of like, do not squander this opportunity. I think that's why I refuse to give up. I've had lots of setbacks. When people look at my life, for most people, when you look at someone who's achieved something, they look and say, oh, everything went up and to the right for that person. But when you zoom into that line, there's lots of jagged edges in terms of ups and downs that people just don't really see. But I had tons of jagged edges, you know, in that path that I've had. I feel pride in the fact that I was able to accomplish a lot of things, but I feel the most pride that I just refuse to give up. You have nothing left to prove. Is your wife not like, dude, what the f*** is wrong with you? Our kids are gone. What are we still doing? Why are we still doing this? Like, are you okay? (laughs) I feel like you've already spoken to my wife and I give my wife a lot of credit. She gave up a lot for the family and for me. 
she had a PhD. She was doing some cutting edge research. I had just started Blade Logic, and our youngest son was going through some health issues. And she just said, you know, I got to focus on this and realized like with my travel schedule and the intensity of what I was trying to do, she had to be the one to make the sacrifice. And it was very, very hard on her. And in hindsight, I could have been more empathetic. You know, I just felt like, okay, that was preordained that, okay, my wife would slow down and I keep working. But she went through a lot of turmoil, giving up her career. And, and I think for women, at least from my perspective, this is one, one person's point of view, especially highly educated women, they go through this cognitive dissonance where if they focus on their career, they feel like they're being bad parent. And if they focus on being a good parent, they go, why the hell did I get all this training? And I saw that conflict with my wife. And I think it's really challenging. And I think it's also been a source of conflict in our relationship because there's times when she did feel, and rightly so, that she gave up a lot for the family and everything has worked out for me and what am I doing now and so on and so forth. And, you know, it's her time. She also knows that I'd probably throw myself out a window if all I did was pot around the garden or play golf all day. So I think she knows a little bit about me. And the other thing is that, uh, you know, I also feel, and we also feel like we want to also make sure our boys understand that just because you have resources doesn't mean that you just don't try and be productive, right? You know, there's a lot of things you can do. Going back to Shlomo, he had this idea that he would talk to his wife about that there's this impending retirement one day, this feeling that he's supposed to do this, kicking and screaming, taking his third company public, and then riding off into the sunset. It's somewhat masochistic that he's done this three separate times, but I also think it's his vocation. It's his calling. Do you feel that way? Like, do you feel this sense of impending dread or doom when it's all over? What I dread is like basically being irrelevant. That's what I worry about. And I remember after I sold Blade Logic to BMC, I take it to public a year later, we sold to BMC and I stayed at BMC for two years. And then I left and basically didn't do much for a couple of years. I was basically coaching my kids soccer and baseball teams and so on and so forth. But I had this panic attack that people would forget who I was. I'd suddenly be off the grid and everyone would forget about me and then move on. And so I realized that um, people didn't forget, but still it was a real panic attack that I had. And so now I worry, like, in some ways, am I aging out? Am I getting to the point where can I connect with a brilliant 20-year-old engineer? Can I connect with uh, a group of people who have now obviously growing up in a very different perspective than myself, so, which is why... I try and understand what's going on with my boys because they're in their 20s now and try and understand what, you know, one's still in college, one just graduated and try and figure out what's going on with them. And I, I, a lot of their friends reach out to me for advice and I'm always happy to give them advice and on career stuff. And, but to me, I'm really, really worried about aging out and being one of those old fogey, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, what I fear about is, uh, also being like it's that old Bruce Springsteen song, Glory Days, you know, me only talking about, you know, in Blade Logic, we did this and MongoDB, we did this. It's like, you know, people like rolling their eyes. Okay, this guy just always wants to talk about the past. And I see some successful people, you know, always reverting to what they did in the past. And I, I don't want to be one of those guys who just lives in the past. Going down that path for a second, this idea of relevance is fascinating to me, especially in my industry, in venture capital. This idea of relevance is very, very prevalent, which is why generational transitions are so hard to nail in venture capital. Because 
partners never want to leave because they'll lose some sense of relevance because so much of their identity is wrapped in what they do. And part of it is because being a venture capitalist is just a lot easier than being an operator. If you couldn't connect with a 21-year-old engineer that ended up deciding to go to a competitor of Mongo, then what? Where does your mind go if you lost your fastball in that way? Yeah, I think that the key thing for that is learning and adapting. And it's actually, I've seen it actually happen with a lot of execs who I've hired. When you're scaling a business, I've realized not every person scales the same rate. And the key factor for why they don't scale is they can't learn and adapt as the business grows, right? How you manage a business with 50 people versus 500 people versus 5,000 people is very, very different. And even myself, like, I've learned a lot. When I was at Blade Logic, I was a missile. If you were in my way, I wasn't going to go around you. I was going to go through you. And I realized that came at some cost. And so I had to modulate my style. And so to your question, if I'm not connecting with someone, the question I would ask myself is, what do they see that I don't see? Or what do they hear that I don't hear? Which is why they don't feel like they can connect with me. You know, Charlie Munger just died last week. And I've read a lot about him. And obviously, there's lots of stories not coming about him. I mean, this guy was relevant till he was 99 years old. I mean, talk about a career. And the, one of the reasons he stayed so relevant it was that he was a learning machine. And I can only hope to learn and adapt as well as he did because people still sought his advice, even though he was 99 years old. I mean, just think about that, right? And I think to me, the key to growing is constantly learning and adapting. And I would tell you, it's a lot easier said than done. I've given so much coach to executives when I see them struggling. And I'm telling them, you have to adapt your style. You can't just use the same playbook you're using before. And they'll listen to me. They'll agree with me. But internalizing that feedback and then changing your style and your MO is so, so hard for a lot of people. So for me, that's one of the things that I constantly work on is how can I continue to learn and grow? Do you think you can be relevant without your career? Ooh, that's a good question. There's a politically correct answer and then how you actually feel. <laughs> I mean, I, how I actually feel is like, obviously I'd have, I would have done something unless someone else was providing for me. I, ha I would have to be doing something. And so if my career was a little bit more low key, maybe I wouldn't feel as relevant. Maybe I'd feel like I'm, I'm just a number. But I, you know, I also think like there's other, the other people I know who are focused on their family, focus on their community, who feel very, very relevant, but on paper may not have had the success that a lot of other people had. So I think relevance is a very personal thing. You know, if you've invested in your career, in your children, sorry, and your children end up being great people, not just professionally successful, but also just very good people, that's probably the most important legacy you can leave behind. So, but to answer your question, honestly, I'd worry about how relevant I was if I didn't have my career. Yeah, it's kind of like when I see Tom Brady now, I think differently of him. When he's on the field, I worship him, view him as a hero. But now it's almost like he's a has-been. And right or wrong, it's just a different feeling. I find there to be more credibility when you're doing it. Yeah, there's no question. You know, I've been to a lot of events where you meet very successful retired ex-athletes who come and, you know, spend time with customers and spend time with you. And I always wonder to myself, is this really what they want to be doing? <laughs> like, and they're very friendly. Obviously, they're getting paid to come and spend time with you. 
But I, I asked myself, like, that's back to the Bruce Springsteen glory days, right? They're kind of living off their glory days of being this amazing athlete and having all the success. But what are they doing now? There are some athletes who really reinvented themselves, you know, who have now started businesses, who've created brands for themselves. And, you know, I'm really impressed with those people. But to your point, there's a lot of athletes who are still living off the glory days of what they did when they were in their 20s and 30s. What's the hidden cost of being the CEO of a huge company that most people wouldn't think about, wouldn't realize, or wouldn't know? One of the challenges of being a CEO is that, and it's not just a company of this size or even small companies, it's a very, very lonely job. Because when people are approaching you and advocating for things, they obviously have a, some sort of parochial interest, whether it's your exec team, whether it's your board. And so the CEO, in some ways, has a lonely job because there's no one that they can really go to to float a controversial trial balloon, right? Like, hey, I want to consider this. Well, if you're thinking about a massive org change and you talk to your team, well, the people who are going to be marginalized in that org change or lose power and influence are not going to be very happy about that. Or if you talk to your board about potentially doing a controversial acquisition, they might get a little nervous and say, what's that going to do for the stock price or potentially their ownership in the company? You know, I find that being CEO is a very, very lonely job. And the way to solve for that is to find mentors where you can really have a high trust relationship where they will not judge you, but they also have perspective and experience to help you see around corners that you may not necessarily see. And that's the way I've dealt with it. But the CEO job is a very, very lonely job. But isn't that counterintuitive? I understand the conventional wisdom. It's almost like a celebrity that says that they can't connect with anybody and that it sucks when they walk outside and there's cameras everywhere taking pictures of their family. Fine, I get that. But isn't it like, hey, there's thousands of people in your organization that all want to connect with you. There's all sorts of people in the investor community that want a piece of you. Doesn't it actually feel good? What am I missing? On the outside looking in, everyone wants to do this thing. But on the inside looking out, it's a somewhat lonely existence. How is that possible? The reason is that people are very happy to talk to you, but they're happy to talk to you about things that are important to them. You know, hey, what's going on in their life? What they've done well? Maybe they're curious about some questions about your career. But the question you should ask is like, who can you bear your soul to? Who can you talk about your trials and tribulations? Who can you talk to about your vulnerabilities and insecurities? Who can you talk to when you're faced with a difficult decision? You know, maybe you have a line executive, you'll start to wonder about whether they're going to make it. And they've done a great job for you all the way through, but you're not convinced that that person can take you to the next chapter of growth. Who do you go to talk to about that? And so that's where it gets very, very lonely. Of course, you can have a lot of backslapping conversations and yabba dabba do like conversations. And I'm not saying that they're necessarily trite, like people want to hear from you and people want to hear your perspective. Mm -hmm. And I spend a lot of time with employees, but it's very hard to find people where you can really bury your soul and talk about all the things that you're worried about. You're worried about where the market's going. You're worried about your company's position in that market, the potential threats that may be surfacing. Those are conversations that are not easy to have. And the only way you can have is with people, one, you trust, and also who have some perspective that you value. And it's very hard finding that Venn diagram of people who have those two things. Does the power dynamic create an inherent mistrust for you where 
in the back of your mind, you're asking yourself if somebody wants something from you? I think over time, when you work with people, you can quickly figure out the people on your team and, and the board and where they're coming from. I'm very grateful for the board that we have. It's a very high functioning board. And in general, like, you know, I'm very grateful for the team I have, but I also know, you know, what are the things that they're very passionate about, also know what things they're insecure about. And so I can kind of categorize them in a certain way. So when I need, when I'm debating an issue, I know which executive I should go to for which topic, because I know when I can get some really healthy perspective. Hiring a good chief people officer, I always tell younger CEOs, you got to have a really strong chief people officer because ultimately you're not in the technology business, you're not in the software business, you're in the people business. And so having a good chief people officer, I can talk to you about even the dynamics across the executive team because that person can sometimes see things and be much more impartial when you're having fierce conversations about strategy or tactics or capital allocation. And I realized if I want that person in the room when I'm debating a topic, I really value them. If I don't want that person in the room, then something is awry and I need to figure out why. Then the question is, if, if I don't want that person in the room, then why do I have them in the first place? And so that's kind of a heuristic or mental model I use to kind of assess my team. And so I figure out a way to go to different team members for different things. I've worked with my CFO and COO for eight years now. You know, he's really insightful about capital allocation decisions. But then I go to my head of sales about what's happening in the markets, how's customer buying behavior changing and stuff like that. So I can kind of use people for different things. So I, I think the more you work with them, the more you can get a better sense of how you can use them and how they can use you. I think, as you said, when people lower the organization, the power dynamic becomes much more profound. And now, like if I walk in the office and some junior employee sees me, it's almost like they've seen a celebrity. It's kind of embarrassing. Totally. I'm rereading Slootman's Amp It Up for the third time, uh, this time with underlines and highlighters because I'm uh, having him on the pod. What do you make of his book? What do you make of his style, more broadly speaking? Well, you can't argue with his success. I think, uh, again, he's someone who's done it multiple times. I think the fact that someone has done had success in multiple situations with multiple companies in different markets tells you that he's a very effective leader. I think his style is very full frontal and direct. His style is focus on one thing and do it really, really well. His style is urgency. Don't wait to do something tomorrow that something can be done today. And so- Don't you feel like you're kind of describing your style? Yes, I mean, a lot of people say Frank and I are very similar. I, I mean, I've met him a couple of times. I wouldn't say that I know Frank that well. John McMahon, who's, who was on the board of both Snowflake and on MongoDB, said he's describes that we're both fighters. You know, there's some people in times of adversity flee and there's some people who fight and we're both fighters. I would also say that I think both of us have adapted over time. I think the Frank who ran Data Domain is very different than the Frank who ran Snowflake. I think the Dave who ran Blade Logic is very different than the Dave who ran MongoDB. And I said that comes back to learning and adapting. But... Uh, I'll be interested in what Frank has to say. How do you relate to the Dave that was running Blade Logic? I'll give you a shitty example. Episode 1 to 30 of this podcast, I'm embarrassed by. I want my team to delete into the nebulous forever. I can't listen to it. Like I said, shitty example, but how do you think about the founder, CEO, Dave from Blade Logic? Are you proud of that guy? 
I'm proud of the uh, of what we accomplished, but I'm also embarrassed of some of the things I did and how I operated and how I acted in certain situations. There's no question. And to your point, I think one test of are you learning and growing and adapting is are you embarrassed by the version of yourself that's two, four, six, eight years younger than the current self, right? If you're not, that means you're not really growing that fast. So if you're embarrassed of the person you were two, three years ago, that tells me that you've grown a lot and you've got perspective. One of my mentors who really helped me was a guy named Steve Walski. He was the, end up being the chairman of Blade Logic, And he's the one who really informed my philosophy around leadership and how to think about building software businesses. Anyway, so we were talking about an individual in my office and he goes, Dave, you don't want to know what the meaning of life is. And he goes on the whiteboard and draws two concentric circles. And I was looking at him saying, target? I'm like, what, what is he talking about? He goes, the outer circle is what people think they are. The inner circle is who they really are. And the, his point was, obviously, everyone has a overinflated opinion of themselves. And there's always going to be some degree of inflated opinion of yourself. But when that gap is really wide, that's when problems happen, right? And when I see people struggle and when I see people run to problems, it's usually because the way they perceive themselves versus the way they're coming across is so different. And that's why they can't be as effective and impactful as they should be. John McMahon, who actually used to work for me as the head of sales at Logic and then at BMC, one of his great questions is when someone runs into trouble, he goes to that person, he goes, hey, when you walk out of the room, what do you think people say about you? And it's a real great litmus test to figure out how self-aware someone is. And I think one of the hallmarks of leadership is self-awareness. And being self-aware means that you are intellectually honest about your strengths and your weaknesses. And so then you know the things you got to work on. The people who are wholly self-unaware are the ones around the problems. And so back to your original point, now you have some perspective. The episodes one through 30, you said, wow, if I had to do it all over again, I, I use this intervening technique. I'd probably spend more time on this topic, you know, whatever the things that you, you know, insights you gained. And that's because you're learning more about yourself. And I think being self-aware is a hallmark of great leaders. What other hallmarks? What other things do you interrogate? The other thing I would say is to drive excellence, you have to be incredibly judgmental. Most people, when push comes to shove, are afraid to make the decisions they need to make to be truly successful. They're not willing to maybe fire the people that need to be fired. They're not willing to be extreme about the product decisions that need to be made and the way products are priced. They're not willing to reassess their whole approach to go to market. Most people fold with the pressure to make hard decisions. And that's why I think you have a lot of mediocre companies is that people know they should do something, but they just don't have the conviction or the courage maybe to do what needs to be done. You think it's because they want to be liked? Yes. You know, it's, it's the pleasure pain syndrome. Usually everyone gravitates to pleasure and avoids pain. And dealing with these issues is painful. Dealing with someone who may have done a good job for you when you went from zero to 50 million revenue, but now when you're going from 50 to 100 is, is not scaling, you got to have that conversation. And you got to be able to give them direct feedback and if they can't adapt and change, you got to let them go. And that's a very, very hard for most people to do. Do you do like an audit 
of your year around this time? Looking back, Christmas, New Year, do you look back and do a intentional reflection about the year? I do. Like I probably am, again, said another way is, you know, adapting is all about introspection and acting on that introspection. As I said, most people struggle with the acting part. They can introspect and if they're intellectually honest, they can say, well, that went well and that didn't go so well, or why did I make a bad decision here? And what was the root issue? And how do I learn from that? And so I think like, for me, it's not like an end of year thing. I'm constantly introspecting and uh, trying to figure out why things happened and why things didn't work out or why something not going as well as they should. And so for me, it's not like some end of year seminal session where I just think about like what happened the past year. I tend to do it quite frequently. Where does introspection happen for you? Does it happen like in the shower, in a workout? Where does it tend to happen? You call it, it's usually when you're not thinking about something, you start thinking about something, right? Something important. In the shower, going for a run, in a workout, maybe driving, and you just start thinking about something and it kind of gnaws at you and then you keep thinking about it. Dave, honest question. If you were to do the introspection of this last year now and you were to frame it in pleasure and pain, how much of your calendar, how much of your time spent working would you characterize in the pleasure versus the pain bucket? I would say in generally, I enjoy what I do. You know, there's that old Steve Jobs quote, right? So work is going to fill up a large part of your life. And to be truly satisfied, you have to do what you believe is great work. And the only way to do great work is to love what you do. And I actually love what I do. There are definitely parts of my job when I have to take someone to the proverbial woodshed, when I have to dress down someone or um, I have to call out what I think is poor decision-making or people just not having the same level of commitment to getting something done that I think they should have. And there's times when I have to really make an example of someone. It's not something I enjoy, but I the reason I do it is to make it clear it's important for me to call out when I believe people are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And again, that's the part of being judgmental, right? Like you have to give people feedback. The one of the things I cannot stand is passive aggressive behavior. And I see so many companies where everyone's very polite to each other. Everyone is very positive, but that's not what they're really thinking. And one of our values here is intellectual honesty. Say what you believe. Don't prevent politeness blocking the truth. You know, I thrived on an environment growing up. My stepfather was very direct. I always knew where I stood. Sometimes it was painful. I think most people generally want to know where they stand. I think sometimes that when people try to avoid the pain, they try and sugarcoat things. And then at the end of the year, you give someone a bad review and they're like, this is underwhelming. You know, I thought I was doing better. Well, you know, you could have done some things better. Well, why don't you tell me that when you felt like there was a gap between what I was doing versus what you expected me to do? And so being more direct and giving people feedback early and often, I think is really, really important. Are you willing to do that with anybody? Meaning someone like John McMahon, one of your former CROs, one of the greatest CROs we've seen in the Valley. Have you set an example with John? Like, are you willing to take him to the woodshed? Yeah, I mean, John and I have had uh, tough conversations. It's not very often. And there's times like uh, one of John's uh, strengths, he's a great eye for talent. But sometimes even John, I felt like maybe had a blind spot for someone. And you could say the same thing about me. I have my own blind spots. And so you also have to figure out how people operate, right? There's people like John who put so much pressure on themselves, just giving them a little bit of feedback 
they completely get it and they go. Where other people, you know, it's the proverbial, some people need the armor on the shoulder and some people need the kick in the rear end. And so you have to modulate your style depending on who you're talking to and how you what you think can be the most effective in getting your point across. Yeah. How much time do you spend thinking about what people say about you when you leave the room? Oh, I think it's important. Like those two circles, there's always going to be a gap between how yeah. I perceive myself and reality. But I hope that gap is small enough that it's not causing too many problems. You know, I know who I am. I know I can uh, how I can frustrate people. I know how I can uh, come across. I know sometimes in meetings, if I'm thinking about something else, I may not be all in on a meeting. And I, sometimes I feel bad because the person can tell that I'm just not giving them my full attention and that's not good. So there's times when you know that you're not doing your best work and you have to recognize that. But I'm sure there's things that I do that I just don't know I do that is uh, not great. One of the things that struck me when we first met is, and it's very normal, I have a quick intro call with my guests, say hello, put a face to a name. And in your case, I remember probably three minutes in that this was not going to be a normal intro call and hello. Within five minutes, I'm getting fully interrogated. And I spent the next 25 minutes basically on my heels explaining to you the premise of the show, why I want to talk to you. It happened so fast, I didn't even realize what the f*** was happening. And afterwards, I'm asking myself, what the f*** just happened? I got to imagine it's very rare that you're not the one asking all the questions. It's very rare that you're the one being interviewed. Is that fair? Must be a common experience for you to be driving. It comes back to when you have one-on-one meetings, it's a data gathering session, right? And so obviously the person asking me questions is trying to collect data, but I'm also trying to collect data. It's interesting you mentioned this. I didn't maybe realize I did it as much as, as you thought I did. But when I have one-on-one meetings with people, I always let them start with what's important to them. Because what I realized, again, when there's a power dynamic, if I start with what's important for me, we'll get through all my stuff and then there'll be very little time left for their stuff. And then I realize I've not really heard from that other person about what's important to them. And then I sometimes get surprised after the fact and, and I go to that person saying, why don't you tell me this? And I realized like I never really gave the opportunity to really talk about stuff. When I have my one-on-one sessions, I always start with the person, what's important to them. We start very informally. And I think our first meeting was very casual and all mm-hmm. that. And invariably, what's important to that person will surface, right? Like they'll start bringing up saying, hey, I'm a little worried about X or I want to talk to you about Y and all that. And that gives me a clue about what's top of mind for them. And then that gives me a sense of like who they are and where they're coming from. And then I'll use that as the framework by which to then start asking questions. And I find that as a much more effective way to have one-on-one sessions and me having my strict, okay, there's a, here's the 17 things I want to review with you today. You know, that'll never really give me insight into what the other person is thinking or doing. I remember thinking this guy does not want to be pressured or forced into anything. That was my first impression. And it left me feeling like I should not sell at all to you. Almost like I needed to put the ball back in your court. And if you wanted to do it, you would do it. And if you didn't, that there was no hard feelings. It was interesting for me. It was kind of instructive, kind of having the the dynamic shifted so quickly. Jim, one thing I'll say is, you know, for a podcast host, you're incredibly vulnerable, which I love. I actually think vulnerability is a strength, not a weakness. And it's also endearing. 
it gives me also obviously some insight in terms of what's happening in, you know, with you. A lot of podcast hosts are just, they have a set of questions that they walk through and maybe they've, they've done some research about what I've done and what I've said before. You obviously take the tack where you share a lot about yourself as part of this podcast, which one, I think is different and two, it's endearing. So it makes this conversation feel more real. And uh, I appreciate that. I appreciate you saying that. I feel like you probably relate at Mongo. The reason that I do that is the only way that I can give someone else permission to say how they feel is to say how I feel. And if I never hear what someone else actually feels, then I'm just getting the same perfunctory bullshit that everyone else gets. And that's not very interesting. It's not very insightful. And it's not very real. And I feel like when you put a microphone in front of somebody, it becomes a performance. And that's the power dynamic that I feel. It's an asymmetry from my side to the guest. And it's just because of this microphone. And I have a feeling for you, just because of the role that you occupy within the organization, you have to do quite a lot to disarm people so that you actually start getting more of ground truth. So you start getting more of the real things that are happening. Otherwise, it becomes the performance. Someone that has a meeting with you is just thinking, hey, how am I going to be perceived by Dave rather than what's the information that I need to give to Dave? Yeah, and people mirror the most senior person's behavior, right? And so I saw this myself because, you know, in the early days of Blade Logic, you know, I had massive imposter syndrome. Even though I had been a CEO of another company, it was for a very short period of time, and I merged that company with another company. So I had massive imposter syndrome. Where, like, am I good enough beyond all the childhood stuff I was dealing with? So I felt like I needed to be the answer person on every topic. I feel like I need to have answers on product, on strategy, on go-to-market, on financing. And I realized I was just suffocating people because like I was would like jump in and cut people off. And sometimes I'd take other people's idea and make it my own. And like I just felt like it was very painful, awkward. I was frustrating my team. And I had epiphany saying, like, I don't need to be the answer person. If I'm the village idiot in a meeting and ask a dumb question. I suddenly realized other people in the in the room was like, thank God Dave asked that question because I had the same question, but I didn't want to look like an idiot to ask that question. That's why I believe vulnerability is a massive strength because the more vulnerable you are, the more easy it is to talk to you, the more easy it is to have real conversations versus like coming in and pretending like you know everything and then it's a very stilted conversation. And so that's another reason why we believe in intellectual honesty is like, hey, let's talk about the things that we're the way they are and also admit when we don't know what we don't know. Now, I will tell you, obviously, it's easier said than done. People don't want to admit they're wrong. People don't want to admit that maybe they don't have all the answers. People don't want to admit that maybe the past decision didn't work out as well as it should. But the more you can get people to be vulnerable, the better you are and the more effective you are as an organization. Because in some ways, in a tech business like ours, it's all about taking risks, right? It's all about trying things. And when you try stuff, not everything's going to work. And if you're going to penalize people for things that don't work, then no one's going to take any risk. And that's going to obviously sub-optimize the business. Do you feel like Mongo has pushed the envelope of risk enough, too much, or just enough? I think we've done some things that a lot of people were surprised by. A couple examples. One, we were the one of the first people to come out with a cloud service. And I remember when we launched it and we built that as a public company, Atlas, when we went public, Atlas was like one or 2% of revenue. Now it's two thirds of business. And a lot of people thought this is pre-Snowflake, pre-Elastic, pre-Confluent. 
Well, people thought, wait a minute, you're going to partner and compete with the hyperscalers? How's that even possible? Because they have their own set of database offerings. And so a lot of people thought we were going to be roadkill for someone like AWS, and we proved people wrong. We changed our open source licensing model, where we had a AGPL license. And what we were nervous about is that we started seeing people strip mining open source technology and basically plug it into their cloud and offer essentially your free version becomes your biggest competitor. And so we felt like, well, that wouldn't be fair. We put so much money into our own product. Let's come out with a license that preserves all the benefits of open source, but also preserves our ability to build a cloud business. You know, the OSI got really worked up and said, this is not an authorized license. A lot of people said, oh my God, your adoption is going to dry up. You know, people will, will abandon you because it's not a true open source license. And I thought about this question for a while. And I realized if you're a developer in Bangalore or Mumbai or Shanghai or Palo Alto, and you're trying to solve a problem and MongoDB is the best way to solve the problem. And it's still free. It's still get, you get still all the benefits of open source. Are they going to really care that much that we're not a sanctioned OSI license? I said, I don't think they're going to care. And that bet played off. So that was another controversial thing that we did. I mean, you could argue that MongoDB hiring me was pretty controversial. I was not a hardcore database guy, but I knew something about building software businesses. As you know, in, in the venture business, everyone's very founder friendly and the founder led businesses always outperform non-founder led businesses. And I think people like myself, Frank, Nikesh Arora and others have proven that that's not necessarily true, but that was a pretty controversial decision. And you could even argue starting a database company in New York was pretty controversial. I mean, who would have mm -hmm. thought that, right? So this company's really built, been built on doing the unconventional. Do you feel like that's a load of shit? Honestly, this idea that a founder business, a founder led business is the right way to go. So I think when people say founder led businesses, I think what they're really saying is someone has long-term orientation and really is trying to build a durable business for the long-term. And I've seen this happen a lot where companies get in trouble is when it's clear that the founder is struggling to be the CEO of the company. And then the board will say, well, you need like a COO to come in and help you kind of run parts of business that you're not interested in or you're not good at. But the challenge then becomes, and I've been the number two person at BMC, I was the number two person in the company. The problem is when you're the change agent as a number two person and invariably you're driving change, there's always going to be someone who's unhappy. They've lost power, they've lost influence, someone has lost their job. And if they can have now an appeals process to the founder and say, well, Dave doesn't get why we're doing this and all that, that can create a lot of dysfunction in a business. And I think a lot of venture firms are loath to fire a founder because by definition, it's going to send a signal to other founders that, hey, that could happen to you. And then other venture firms will use that against that venture firm and saying, hey, these guys are ruthless. They'll shoot you in a, in a nanosecond if you have a misstep. So you know, there's a little bit of uh, incentives going on there where a lot of venture firms want to promote the whole founder friendly thing. And I think it comes back down to obviously there's some amazing, you know, there's so many amazing founders and founders have a very special place because you wouldn't have this business if the founder didn't think about starting this business. And I always treated the founders of MongoDB very, very differently than any other employee because they have a certain role and esteem in the organization. But I think blindly saying, only a founder can lead a business, I think, is not the right thing to do. The conventional wisdom is that people need to spend more time on talent, that founders should be spending all this time recruiting people, that CEOs are in the people business. And to your point about conversations that you've had with your head of HR, 
seemingly they don't spend enough time on talent. Someone said this to me, but maybe it's because most of these founders are introverted in nature and introverts don't like extroverted activities, whether that's sales or recruiting. They're more interested in the technical aspects of the job, product, etc. Do you think that maybe that's why they don't actually like to spend the time? I think it depends on what kind of talent. I think technical founders spend a lot of time on technical talent, but they may not fully appreciate the value of um, other domains. I remember I'm on the board of uh, Datadog. I actually, I was a VC and I, invested, I led the B round at, at Datadog and Olivier and the team there has done an amazing job. I remember telling Olivier, hey, you should think about bringing in a head of HR or chief people officer. And he had such an allergic reaction. He's like, oh my God, no way. Because his perspective was that he had worked at IBM and had worked at some companies with the HR team that were a bunch of bureaucrats who just got in the way and made life so painful. And he ended up hiring a really strong head of HR who's now made his life so much easier. So I think sometimes founders don't know what they don't know. Some of them are introverts. And so some of them don't like getting into trying to understand people or dealing with all the people stuff. They will have to learn that skill to be successful. The other thing I find a lot of technical founders don't spend a lot of time is on understanding go-to-market because they think a great product will sell itself. And if you're in a B2B business, even if you have a great product, you still need to understand how to go acquire customers, how to do it effectively, how to do it in a way that enables you to really scale your business fast. And a lot of people, almost if you go to market as a pain or almost like a second class citizen, and then will only worry about go to market when they're not, when they're falling behind on their numbers. And I think the best founders not to spend time on product, but also spend time on understanding how they're going to acquire customers and do it as efficiently as possible. Do you consider MongoDB a product or a go-to-market company? First and foremost, definitely a product company. But to build a great business, you need to have not just have great products, but you need to have a very effective go-to-market channel. And in our business, because the market we're going after is so large, we realize you're just going to have one-dimensional go-to-market model. So we actually have four ways we go to market. We have a direct sales force on to the high end of the customers, the you know, say the Fortune 500. We have a mid-market team. We have a self-serve business. And then we also have a partner channel. And the partner channel is very effective for us to go work with other people who could drive more business to us, whether they're systems integrators, whether they're the hyperscalers themselves, whether ISVs are building on top of MongoDB. They're a really important part of our go-to-market channel. So we actually have quite a complex go-to-market motion. And I tell people as much as we think about product, we think about go-to-market and how we engage with customers. And what people don't realize when you have a very effective go-to-market channel, it's great radar to get feedback on what's happening in the market. What are customers care about? What's the competition doing? How's the market evolving? How's customer buying behavior changing, et cetera. And so that's how you really create the flywheel effect is that you can get great product feedback very, very quickly that then yields into building even better products. During COVID, I was living in Austin and I remember I identified myself as wanting to be in the mix, in the flow, know all the people, being in Silicon Valley. But I remember this distinct wave coming over me at dinner one night. And it was this feeling like, wow, I don't have to keep my voice down, worried about the founder or the competitive VC that's next to me overhearing our conversation. And that was 
really nice. Like I was just removed from all the shit. Do you feel like you get a little bit of that being in New York, almost like it's an escape? I'm probably very biased, but you know, I've been to almost every major city in the world and New York is by far my favorite because of just the heterogeneity of things you can do, just the cultures, the industries, the energy, the dynamism of New York is I think second to none. And to your point, it's not just tech, 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 and tech. Now, New York's changing a bit because it's getting more and more tech-oriented. You know, one of the first times I was early in my career, I went out to the Valley and I remember going to like a taco stand or something. And there was some discussion between the two people inside the taco stand about some dot-com that they were looking at. And I was like, this is crazy. This would never happen anywhere else in the world. Do you draw hard boundaries between personal and professional? Do you do anything, time, rhythms, cadences, anything on your calendar? Is that even possible in your world? I don't like the term work-life balance because it almost feels like it's a zero-sum game where the more you put into work, the more you're taking out of home or vice versa. The best definition I've heard, it really came from Jeff Bezos where he talked about work-life harmony. If you're happy at work, you're more likely going to be happy at home. And if you're happy at home, you're more likely going to be happy at work. And so there's a lot of cross-mingling of work and home with me. I tend to be very open with my team, what's going on in my personal life. For example, I'm flying down to Miami. We're having a big uh, session with a, a leadership session and training session with a bunch of our sales leaders in Miami. And my wife is coming with me. And, uh, you know, I, obviously now that we're empty nesters, she can do that. And uh, she's going to do some stuff herself. But then, you know, she's probably going to come to dinner and meet a bunch of the sales leaders. Right. And I think it's good for people to get a sense of my family and what's important to me. So, yeah, that's just one small example of the cross mingling of home and work. So you don't ever do a no meetings before a certain time or ever create any intentional space for you? Oh, no, I am quite particular about my schedule. So for example, I do try and work out every morning. So I try and avoid very early meetings just because I'm no longer spring chicken. And I feel like if I don't stay healthy, it will affect my effectiveness and my stamina and obviously my health. So I try and carve out time in the mornings. And um, obviously, depending on what's happening a week, I spend time between New York and New Jersey when I'm not traveling, because it depends on what's, what's going on on the personal front as well. And so with Zoom, I think it's offered a lot of flexibility in terms of how we manage our schedule, which I take advantage of. But I'm also a big believer in in-person interactions, which I don't think you can have a fully remote business, nor do I think you need to have everyone in the office five days a week. Are you nuts about how you spend your time? For me, it's one of my triggers. I hate wasting time. I hate when others are wasting my time. It just tips me over. Is there a neuroticism for you? Maybe because I'm also the cause of it. Like because we now have these back-to-back <laughs> Zoom meetings, right. like if one meeting r- runs late, then you're by definition late for the next meeting. And I always try and carve out some break between meetings, but it just doesn't happen. So I'm a little bit more sympathetic to people that are a few minutes late. What I can't stand is ineffective meetings. So I can't stand if we don't have, if someone hasn't prepared well for a meeting or we're not really you know, focused on the right issues, we're kind of getting distracted or people are not on the same page or we're not even clear on what are we trying to accomplish. That drives me more crazy than whether or not someone's a few minutes late. Totally. Well, dude, I really appreciate you doing this. I really, really do. Thank you for the time. And I conclude all these things the same way. The first, are you hiring? What are you hiring for? Any key roles? 
Yeah. So we're hiring across the board. We're hiring across product. We're hiring across our go-to-market organization, also for corporate roles. So I would encourage everyone to go into our career site to see the open roles that we have. And we also have a very attractive intern program. So there's people listening who are either in college and contemplating an internship for next year, or maybe they have children who might be interested in uh, in an internship at a company like MongoDB, I'd encourage people to do that. You know, we're kind of getting towards the end of the application process. So if someone's interested, they should really try and put an application as soon as possible. When you hear the word grit, what do you think of? Never giving up. And it comes back to one of the things I said early on is like, I think life is uh, one of the most enduring advantages is psychological and grit is one of them, right? Just being able to deal with adversity. So what I tell my boys, one of the key things I keep telling my boys, they're probably sick of hearing this from me, is like happiness and success is not the absence of problems. It's the ability to address them and learn from them. And, you know, I talked about Charlie Munger. What was interesting to me about Charlie was this is a guy who lost a child to leukemia at nine years old, was divorced, was broke, but he didn't play the victim. He didn't say, oh, my goodness. You know, life is so unfair. He basically kept persevering. And so to me, that's that is one of the most important ingredients for people to have. Dave, I appreciate you. Thank you, man. Thank you, Jubin. Great to be here. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to come back every Monday morning to listen to a new guest or go back into the archives when we've done more than a hundred episodes. This podcast is a Kleiner Perkins production, and the episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you all.